This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. It's the quickest way to go broke. So I basically went on this two-year journey. I launched the brand in 2020, literally at the start of the global pandemic, which I wouldn't recommend. You're entering a market that's not easy to enter and there's big players. It's really difficult to compete because what's going to set you apart from X, Y and Z beauty products that have just launched on the same day? Challenges happen every day and it was essentially just money down the drain. Customers unfortunately buy their toothpaste at the supermarket and the pharmacy and if we're not available on shelf then we really don't exist. I really just wrapped my head around this almost like in the past 6-12 months so that's something I would recommend to anybody starting a business. Sometimes it's hard to kind of take a breath. I was very kind of complacent and relied on the expertise of other people around me because I felt very underexperienced, which I was, but I never really stood up for myself. How did you overcome that imposter syndrome? It's actually really interesting that you ask this question now. Georgia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Super excited um, to dive into your journey. Um, I think there's, I mean, one of the, the the beautiful things about, you know, podcasting is the people you get to meet. Um, for me, that's, you know, um, you know, we, we are connected in, in a way, you know, we were kind of chatting about this before, but um, we also get a lot of feedback from our listeners um, and kind of they're on their own startup journey and, you know, speaking to founders that have had some success and being able to learn, you know, from, uh, you know, some of the lessons that you can share is, is always really exciting. We might start with the startup story. You know, yep. how did how did Gem first come about and, and kind of, you know, uh, was, it a, was it this kind of spark idea? Like what was the, the story of how Gem started? So I launched the brand in 2020, literally at the start of the global pandemic which I wouldn't recommend. Um, But the idea for the brand really came a couple years before that when I was living in LA and I was working as a model and I was surrounded by all these beauty products. And I noticed a massive shift in beauty towards natural that I didn't necessarily see happening in the personal care space. And more specifically in oral care in toothpaste, I kind of thought, you know, how ironic we spend our lives avoiding certain ingredients in our beauty products, in our home products. But then you come home and you're brushing your teeth with some ingredients that have actually also been banned in hand soap, but you can still find them in mainstream toothpaste. Yeah, wow. So, you know, I couldn't understand why natural toothpaste or better for you toothpaste wasn't more popular until I tried a lot of the natural brands on the market. Um, And given I was living in LA at the moment, uh, at at that time, the market was not saturated, but there was a couple of other natural players in the space. But what I found was that the toothpaste specifically, it it wasn't minty, it didn't foam up properly, and it was packaged in sort of hippy-dippy, kind of of out-of-date, brown paper bag style packaging. I kind of thought, okay, well, there's an opportunity here to create a better for you, efficacious product that looks really beautiful and people are kind of proud to showcase on their bathroom cabinet. So I basically went on this two-year journey Mm -hmm. to really unpack what toothpaste is, 
right? And essentially it's, it's three things. It's a fresh mouth feeling. So it's that really minty kind of fresh feeling in your mouth that you get. It's that kind of good scrub. So the feeling that, you know, you've had a really good clean and that comes with kind of the, the foaminess that toothpaste brings. Mm-hmm. And then it's the enamel remineralizing piece. So it's like that fluoride piece that often kind of goes over people's heads and it's really boring and really sciencey and I can kind of, you know, go deep into it or, or not. But a lot of the natural brands, they were taking out fluoride, but they weren't replacing it with anything functional or science-backed that was proven to remineralize tooth enamel as effectively as fluoride. So what I did was I basically, you know, read up on all these research articles from the first toothpaste ever invented, which was, you know, made with eggshells in ancient (laughs) Egypt to vitamins in toothpaste. And, you know, I really understood that, well, actually, you're not really ingesting the vitamins when you're brushing your teeth. So it's in effect ineffective. Mm. And then I kind of, I found this ingredient called hydroxyapatite and it's our hero ingredient it's been scientifically proven to work as effectively as fluoride in remineralizing the tooth enamel but it's derived from coconut um but it's endorsed by dentists it's led us to you know having having that dentist endorsement behind the brand which has been really really important to our success i think it's really important to have legitimacy and credibility especially when you're in a a space that is saturated by competitors that have spent, you know, millions and millions on that kind of authoritative piece. Um, And then we've also been approved by the DHAA, the Dental Hygienist Association of Australia. So, you know, I really spent time digging deep into the ingredients of the product and making sure my product was as efficacious as it can be. Because I knew I needed to take out all of these ingredients found in common toothpaste, but I had to replace them with functional ingredients that actually worked. So I found that fluoride replacement piece. I took out an ingredient called triclosan, which is the ingredient that's been banned in hand soap. Mm -hmm. You know, it's great for antibacterial purposes. And when you brush your teeth, you know, when you wake up in the morning, like you don't want that icky kind of mouth feel. You want it to feel like it's really worked. Mm And so I, you know, I made a couple of tweaks to my formulation, added a couple of secret ingredients, well, not so secret ingredients, just read the back of the tube, but we really dialed up certain ingredients to increase the kind of antibacterial component in the toothpaste. So I really kind of dove deep on the the science component um, because I think it's really important if you are going to put a product out there, it needs to look really beautiful because that's going to attract a consumer when they're walking past the shelf but they're not going to rebuy it if the product's not efficacious or it's not working. So to nail the formulation was a huge component to launching my business. And we did eventually launch in 2020 with a formulation that I was super, super happy with, a formulation that we still have on shelf today, but the packaging was, it was off. Yeah, and so we basically then spent the next two years refining the packaging um, and delivering on a a full range, um, which now our products are, we've got 13 SKUs with a view to increase to 20 by the end of the year, um, within full kind of updated branding and packaging, which I'm super proud of. So what I what what like really interests me about this journey is you're not you're you're entering a market that's not easy to enter, and there's big players, you know, and it's a uh, you know, it's 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 a market where um, there probably wasn't much innovation for a long period of time. Yeah. You know, and um, w- like, and you also mentioned that it was a two-year journey just to get the product right. Yes. Like, was there periods of time during that process where um, 
you, you know, like I'm sure there was challenges and there would have been times, was there times where you felt like, oh, uh, you know, can I actually do this? You know, is, am yeah. I, am I biting off too much here? You know, cause I feel like um, a lot of founders and people with great ideas like yourself can, and especially when they're up against the big players and they go into these big markets that sometimes they can have those thoughts. And I'd love to kind of get a gauge of maybe some of those, you know, stories where it was like, oh, wow, like there was this massive hurdle put in front yes. of you and, and how you overcame, uh, overcame those, you know, hurdles as well mentally and, and you know, yeah. also from a, a process perspective. So definitely. <laughs> um, I think I can answer the question in a couple of different ways, but kind of to begin, the reason why I chose oral care and toothpaste more specifically for my brand was twofold. Number one, there's a very high barrier to entry or a very perceived high barrier to entry. So, you know, my competitors have spent millions and millions and millions on like the efficacy and the legitimacy and the credibility behind their brands. And toothpaste is quite sort of clinical and sciencey, but really it's treated as a cosmetic, not a drug by the FDA. So even though there is that perceived barrier to entry, it was easier for me to engage sort of dentists and mentors to help me develop my formulation. Mm. But I liked that there was that barrier to entry in the market. And then the other reason was that everybody brushes their teeth. Yeah. So the category is enormous. And, you know, anyone with teeth is a potential customer for us. But challenges happen every day. I mean, you know, no challenges, no business, my husband always says. And it's about overcoming those challenges. It's about learning. It's about surrounding yourself with fantastic people to mentor you, to give you advice, and sometimes just to tell you to keep going. You know, I often call my dad crying, saying X, Y, and Z's happened, and he just says, just either take a break, but just keep going. You know, and it's just about that persistence um, that, you know, really propels me and drives me forward and, and keeps me on my track. And so one of the, uh, you kind of mentioned that the industry was a little bit untouched and, you know, we kind of also said that there was, you know, maybe a lack of innovation there and yeah. you've seen the opportunity. I really love that you know, piece. Can you talk to more about, you know, I mean, we're obviously, you've got a, a, a longer journey. You talked about changing the branding and the packaging and, and so on, but could you talk to like, um, potentially giving advice to say founders and, you know, people that have this idea around, you know, what you think helped or, you know, the characteristics around your product of what actually may allowed it to make progress. You know, you kind of talked about, um, for you, it was finding natural ingredients and finding differentiation through that. And then yeah. you probably reached a hurdle where you're like, okay, we actually have to stand out now from a branding and packaging perspective. Yes. Like what are the different elements that you wrapped around your product um, and also, you know, building the product that you can kind of share some advice of, okay, if you have an idea, maybe this is the checklist you need to go through to make yes. sure it's going to be a worthwhile journey. Well, I think the most important thing is to figure out, is there a need for your product in the market? Mm. Um, I think there is lots of beauty brands popping up and I've said this before, beauty is a very attractive category because customers want to spend big on beauty. There's been a huge shift towards, you know, mm. beauty focused products and with Instagram, everybody wants to, you know, appear beautiful and improve their skin quality and, you know, beauty and skincare are massive and the margins are attractive. So the unit economics in those two categories are very favorable. 
but it's really difficult to compete because what's going to set you apart from X, Y, and Z beauty products that have just launched on the same day. And I don't, I honestly don't think that customers like Mecca would have paid us, you know, any attention if we weren't offering something different. Mm -hmm. So what I love about Gem is that we're in a completely different category, but there is still ties to, you know, the beautification of oral care. And so we can talk and present in a way that a beauty brand would but we're presenting an, a non-competing product the things that you were wrapping around your product as well like yes. um you know obviously building the product you had differentiation through going yes. natural and you were yes. kind of talking about then you know making sure that there's a need for your product yes. as a checklist and then, exactly. then i think we also talked a little bit about branding and packaging which yes. I, I i find that really interesting because that's yes. a um you know your messaging has to be different you, yes. you have to be able to stand out you know yes. not only from a needs perspective, but yes. to get that attention in the first place. Yeah, so I think the number one thing is figuring out if there's a need for your product in the market. And then number two, who is your ideal customer and what are they looking for in the product that you're providing? You really need to figure out your customer. So is she female, is he male? You know, how old are they? What are they looking for in a product? Do they want clean, minimal, aesthetic in packaging? Do they want, you know, hyper kind of brand maximalism in packaging? and then you need to tailor your product in accordance with their needs. Mm. But it's tricky with things like oral care and toothpaste yeah. because you know people ask me, who's your customer? Anyone with teeth really. So I've got my 10 year old cousin using the brand and loving it, using the toothpaste. And then I've got my 87 year old grandmother using it as well. So how do you really create packaging neutral enough to subscribe to both of those kind of tastes and preferences? Is psychology something that you focused on? Like I know we talk, you know, when we're talking about that bullseye and we can say like, you know, demographics and gender, but, you know, is psychology something that you kind of focused on when you go out and you think about packaging and, and th a yeah. key kind of point? I think psychology is something we focus on when I think about my distribution strategy. Yep. So I think um, for us it was really important to launch into a premium player like Mecca mm -hmm. and really establish the brand in a really premium sort of way and in a really premium position uh, but what I've quickly learned is you know customers unfortunately buy their toothpaste at the supermarket and the pharmacy and if we're not available on shelf then we really don't exist mm -hmm. so you know to tailor that kind of or to have a tiered kind of distribution approach where you present in a really premium way you enter the market in a really premium way and then you almost seep down and then offer that kind of accessibility to mm. everybody by being available kind of everywhere is how we've really dealt with like the psychology of customers and creating the brand in that way. Yeah. And so was that something like you kind of realized in real time or is that something you specifically uh, engineered maybe, you know, in the beginning of kind of going, almost trying to create demand in the beginning and then as the brand create, gets more awareness over time, you can start to make your way into, you know, these more accessible distribution channels. I think it was something that I've learned along the way. Yeah. So I think I wanted to go out as a premium natural oral care product. And what I quickly realized was, you know, in my space specifically, you're premium at say $15, but you're not premium premium enough that you can sell enough volume at that level to make enough money to spend on marketing. Yeah. So it's really figuring out that unit economics piece, which I touched on earlier, and just making sure that you've got enough fat in the equation to justify kind of growing the brand and spending on marketing. Because, you know, 
there's so many hidden costs that you quickly realize and quickly understand. That's another thing I would recommend definitely getting, you know, somebody to help you with your P&L and with budgeting as well. Um, because, you know, and I almost work backwards. Like I figure out my projected volume and then, you know, where does that put me from a margin perspective? How many, you know, how much cost do I need to factor in from a warehousing and logistics perspective? And then how much do I have on marketing? But marketing should be your number one thing, especially when launching a startup. Yeah. Like, you know, you need to make people aware of the brand. Yeah, 100%. I love that you, you so uh, unit, unit economics is just like a, I feel like when you first get into business, you may have a, di- a little bit of an understanding, but as yeah. you're trying to navigate growth, that's probably one of the most important things to truly understand. Yeah. Um, and I love also how you're talking about, I think, for, you know, if you think about your journey specifically, trying to, you know, enter the market premium, having, and, you know, when we talk about premium, we're talking about larger margins, higher price point, which is not just, it's not just a unit economics equation. It's, you know, if you want to be premium, you actually have to price there. Can you explain a little bit about unit economics, you know, in your journey and, yeah. and the role that has played and maybe just give a brief overview of, you know, what a, what unit economics are and yeah, why they're definitely. important. So just for context and, you know, reference, I really just wrapped my head around this yeah. almost like in the past six, 12 months. So if you're starting a new brand and you have no idea what it is, like that's okay. And you also learn kind of on the ropes yeah, or yeah, you learn in business and you know that's the beauty of starting your own business it's the best MBA you'll ever have it's like learn you you like unit economics for me is one of those things you learn be, like because your accountant comes and taps you on the shoulder totally. and says hang on you, you know this could be a big problem and margin I mean like I never I did arts at uni like no one yeah. ever told me what margin <laughs> was like I've got no yeah. idea you know but it's essentially unit economics is your cost price for the goods so you go to a manufacturer they give you you know the my toothpaste is going to cost me X, then I'm going to price it at a retail level at X. But what you also need to factor in if you're going to use things like wholesalers and distributors, you'll have your wholesale price, which in every category is different. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have your distribution price, which again, in every category is different. So you need to make sure that there's enough fat between your cost price and then your sell price not your eventual sell price, but your sell price to your distributor who sells it to the wholesaler, who sells it to the retailer. You need to make sure that tiny, tiny, tiny bit of fat is enough to justify the whole rest of the kind of operation. Yeah. So that's warehousing, logistics, marketing, staff, um, any other kind of costs, any overheads. So it's it's hard. It's yeah. tricky. It's really hard to make money. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah. And it's. I mean, look, it just becomes so important as you get bigger as well. Like yeah. I'm sure that's what. And I think that's kind of coming back to what you were saying before around entering premium. Then all of a sudden, you know, you need to create some accessibility. So yes, well, it's all about volume, right? Yeah, especially as you're trying to scale. Especially in my space, yeah. like we're all about volume. You have to have volume there. Yeah. And it only makes sense for more volume to come as yeah. you're scaling the business, which um, that's when union economics becomes really important. You exactly. know, um, having then, a great accountant, like, you know, that's something that I recommend massively. And yeah. it saved me, you know, in the early days, you kind of notice the difference between a great accountant and someone who's just there to do your basses and, yeah, and so exactly. on. But I also think it's important, you know, when starting a business to really identify you know, four or five businesses that you aspire to be like. Mm. And so whether or not they are a huge multi-million dollar mass brand in grocery and pharmacy supermarket, 
or are they a premium, which is okay as well. Like are they a premium niche kind of player only with their kind of own D2C distribution point and they're stocked in one other retailer. And so there's cases to be made by, there's cases to be made on two different types of business models. You just kind of have to figure out the space that you want to play in. How do you come to that decision, do you think? Like what was, you know, what were some of the uh, characteristics that you looked for for inspiration for your brand? And, yeah. and why did you, why, you know, how do you make that decision? So how do you kind of, you know, um, how do you choose that brand? You know, um, is it more of a internal desire? Is it from a brand perspective? Are you looking at say what you think the numbers are? Are they public yeah. companies? I honestly think it's about how big do you want to be? Yeah. Because you'll never be mass, you'll never be enormous, you'll never be a household brand if you're in one retailer. Yeah. So I think it's about your appetite for growth um, and I think it's about your personal preference as well. Mm. So I do think that there is value in maintaining that brand by having it in one channel. You know, if you've got your D2C business, which I think is really, really difficult in Australia to make money on D2C only, but it gives you complete control over your brand. Whereas if I'm selling into big retailers, the minute I sell my product, the control's gone. Yeah. So I can have some influence on the way that it looks on shelf, but the messaging and the branding around that gets diluted once you sell into a bigger retailer. Yeah. I think it also, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, maybe you can talk to, I think you, you mentioned it before, but like that personal preference as well. Like you said, how big do you want to be? Yeah. And like, you know, I think in, I think what I've learned, you know, probably over the last 18 months is that you, you actually really have to think pretty hard about that. You know, yeah. like do, how big do you actually want to be? Because it's also going to require you um, to make these decisions, you know, that you're, you just talked about, like, you know, um, what path do you want to take in business? You yes. know, is that, did you have that figured out from the very beginning? Did you kind of go into this, you know, you, you talked about that two year phase where you were kind of trying to really build the product and figure that out yep. at the same time, were you thinking about how big you wanted to be and you, you kind of identified that or is that something you just kind of figured out along the way? Yes and no. I feel like in the early stages, I remember being on a plane and doing all the numbers and, you know, figuring out if we can sell X amount of volume and then we can make X amount of money and da, 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 da. But I think what I was maybe naive about at the time was that, you know, I was selling one SKU with a very specific kind of style and packaging and, and branding. And, you know, I was selling natural toothpaste, which we're still selling today, but, you know, in one flavor. So I think at the time I was maybe naive into thinking that, you know, one skew is going to make me a multimillionaire. Mm. What I've since learned is, you know, one skew in one retailer, by the way, what I've since learned is, you know, I've always had an appetite to be enormous and to be everywhere and to be accessible to everybody because I think having a brand that looks really premium but is really affordable and accessible is that is a key mm. driver for me. And that's just something that I've realised just by being in business. But what I realised was, you know, expanding into more SKUs, um, offering different flavour options, offering different products that a natural consumer wouldn't necessarily, you know, if we want to be mass, then we need to offer products that appeal to the mass market. So not everybody would shop a natural toothpaste, but everybody should shop a electric toothbrush. Mm. 
So really reflecting my product offering to to mirror what I wanted to see in the market. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that you. Um, one of the threads I'd love to pull on is you kind of have mentioned having that premium product but at an accessible price, and you said yes. that that's something that you reflect on and and you're probably targeting at yes. the moment. Can you explain why yeah. you think that's really important? Um, and is it correct me if I'm wrong, but there, that might be that relation to scale in a sense and yep. kind of you know being able to go as big as what you you do wish yeah i think it's interesting i think my perspective on this definitely changed with the evolution of my business yeah um but i think there's been brands popping up that have done this really really well um there's a great brand monday hair care jamie mm-hmm. you've done an incredible job it's a brand that i aspire to be like but i think their positioning in the market is so genius because it's you know salon quality hair care at really accessible affordable prices in really mainstream places and i think the category that i'm in you know i can't be misguided i'm selling toothpaste mouthwash Mm -hmm. you know and whitening products and i need to be where my competitors are otherwise i'm never going to get penetration in the market and i need to be priced you know we're a premium product, so we'll always be priced in a more premium way. We've got incredible kind of efficacy of ingredients and, you know, the thoughtfulness of ingredients, which should be reflected in price, but it can't be too expensive that it's going to preclude 90% of the market from buying the product. So it's finding that right balance. And you talked about penetration of the market, you know, um, and, and I'd love because I, th- I feel like there might be a connection to what you just mentioned around like obviously um, you have such a differentiated product and there's a lot of thought and care that goes into the ingredients um, and I'm sure that there would have been challenges there. We you know we just talked about unit economics and yeah. trying to to bring the cost of it's producing really that good. Hard. Yeah, especially all of all of our products are made in Australia. Oh wow! So it's yeah, really really challenging. But it's important to me. You know, I'm from Australia. We're selling to an Australian market. Was that your greatest challenge? Like, was that the greatest challenge in getting the, the product off the ground or the startup off the ground of kind of going, we're going to make all this in Australia, we're going to use ingredients, we're going to take the path less, you know, um, took by, you know, other companies. Was that the greatest challenge of kind to trying to fit or, you know, make these unit economics work with, with that kind of, um, yes. that path? Yeah, and it's always going to be a challenge, right? Because I'm never going to compromise on ingredients, quality of ingredients, um, and I think, you know, we're, we're still at a startup kind of stage. We're still producing kind of low volumes. I think with increased run rate, increased volumes, you get the price down eventually. Yeah. Um, and also a bit more consistency with supply as well. So it's been very kind of ad hoc. Like we've been very reactive to the market. We've been making very small bets. And that's something I would recommend to anybody starting a business. Make small bets. Don't make big bets on stock. Don't make big bets on forecasting, on marketing plans. Um, do things in a very kind of tiered, tailored way because it's the quickest way to go broke. Yeah. So can you just – can you deep dive – not deep yeah. dive but just explain a little bit or maybe give an example of that, yeah. like what that might look like for someone's business? So when I started Gem, literally three months into launching the brand, I had one skew. I was selling natural, non-toxic toothpaste, the toothpaste we discussed before. It had a huge tiger on the packaging. It was all about – unleashing the ferocity of nature with the tiger. You know, it was great. It was my first baby. I was approached by two guys, two marketing whizzes who really encouraged me to build a funnel. 
and I'd never heard of a funnel. Yeah. I still don't really understand what a funnel is, yeah, but yeah, they yeah. you know, convinced me that it was essential to the market performance of my product. And if I didn't build this funnel, customers wouldn't, you know, would, they wouldn't understand the product. They wouldn't see the product. This is all, you know, in relation to performance marketing and online kind of ad spend. So after months of deliberation, I decided I'm going to build this funnel. Anyway, 20 grand later, I built this funnel. I still have no idea. I mean, I know what a funnel is now, but I invested at the time, which seemed to be a lot in something I didn't really understand. Yeah. And my product wasn't ready. My product might've been ready, but the, the packaging and the branding, it wasn't mm. ready and it wasn't resonating. And it was essentially just money down the drain. And that's the problem with doing things too quickly. You feel like you might be ready, but in essence, it takes a while for customers to even come across your product. It takes 10 touch points from a customer to purchase. And so investing heavily in that one, two, three touch point, sometimes it ends up being a waste. Yeah, and I lo so I love what you're saying because um, I feel like often you can feel like in order to compete, you need to take this big leap. 100%. And you always you spend heaps of money and you need to, yeah. Yeah, and you kind of, it's like, you know, it's almost like the fear of uh, not taking that leap yeah. of like what could happen exactly. if I don't do this can drive you to make this kind of decision that you may not be ready for, yeah. um, you know, or, if you, you know, it could even be, oh, well, you know, the unit economics, we need to get these down and you kind of, you know, make this big inventory mistake that can happen. Yeah. Um, and so what you're saying is, is, you know, have patience and yeah. just, you know, take that, just take the step that's in front of you. Don't try to, you know, you know, maybe take two or three at the same time. And just be kind to yourself a little bit. Like it yeah. takes six months, six to 12 months in a business to really find your feet, you know? And that's why I think it's so important that you are so hands-on with your business, especially at the start. So I would definitely advise against beefing up your internal team for that six to 12 months. Like I was packing all the orders myself. I was responding to, I still respond to all the customer inquiries and messages. You really need to have a proper grasp of your business before you start hiring other people to do these jobs for you mm. because things just come up that you don't understand. Like, you know, it costs eight ninety five to ship it from the post office. Mm. Then you got to factor in your box and your labeling and your, you know, and you need to, it's important to have kind of, a proper grasp on the ins and outs and the running of the business before you expand too quickly. Team, just a short break. I wanna say a massive shout out to our major sponsors, BizCover. They are a big reason why we get to do what we do every single week. These guys are professionals, they care about your business and they care about the business and startup community, which is something that I really love and a reason why we chose to partner with them. And plus they make the process of getting your company insured super seamless, which is really important with such a tedious process. I've been a customer now for 10 years. I have made claims. It has been super easy. Uh, and it, you know, with as I said, with such a tedious process, uh, these guys are the best in the business. As part of the Startup Diaries community, uh, they have given us a promo code, which is Pivotal25, getting $25 off your business insurance policy. Make sure you head over to bizcover.com.au the link is in the show notes. Get your company insured with a great company. We'll head back to the episode now. You talked about that first 12 months and it can take you a bit of time. What were some of the you know, telltale signs for yourself where you're like, okay, I think we actually are you know, finding product market fit and we, yeah. are, you know, we may be ready to take some of these next steps in our journey. Like, What were some of the signs for you that you're like, 
yeah, okay, this is starting to pick up some momentum. I think it was tricky for us because our first year was COVID. Oh yeah, wow. So we spent a lot of, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, on the couch with my family in my parents' house. Um, I knew the packaging wasn't right, to be honest. I knew the product, product was great, but the packaging was precluding a lot of consumers from buying. So I, I was literally working on my iteration two of packaging two days before we even launched the product. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> people don't even, like, they don't realise it takes five months from sign-off, packaging sign-off to end production. Yeah, wow. That might just be in my industry. Yep. But it takes a while. And so we were already, like, working on iteration two, three for pack. And then I focused on how to beef out my offering. So I wanted to make sure I had a couple of different other flavors of toothpaste, a mouthwash, um, and then we launched like a floss, and then we launched the breath spray and the whitening pen, and those two products really took off. And for me, what I understood, and again, this is just being in business, listening to your customer, was that whitening and efficacy sells. And it's obvious, you know, everybody wants white teeth, But until I had those two products and until I saw the success of the whitening pen specifically at Mecca, I never realized how far we could grow in this space. And then eventually I took that learning and iterated on my premium natural toothpaste and kind of came up with version two, which was a triple whitening toothpaste. So all of our products have that whitening call out, Mm -hmm. again, justifying that price premium in my space. But these are learnings that I only kind of understood just by having bum, like putting a bum in the seat. So it was really, really important for me to be kind to myself, listen to the market and evolve before making these huge purchase decisions and marketing decisions when the brand wasn't ready. Yeah. And so with, you know, with those other two products that you launched, were they... Uh, like how big of a role did they play in your ability to start penetrating the market even further? Like, um, and then how did you come to the decision to actually, because I would imagine that would have been a big decision. Like you're moving, not you're moving away from um, your other product, of yep. course, um, the toothpaste, but you're, it's a it's a risk, right? Yeah. There's a risk associated with um, launching, you know, more SKUs or, or yep. different products, um, you know, um, in, you know, at any time in business, but how did you like come to the decision and say, yep, no, I think this is the right decision to go through. And and I would imagine it was from the customer. Like how did you kind of, yeah. what were some of the um, data points or conversations that you were having and, and how did you do that? Well, just kind of going back to what I was saying before, make small bets. So, you know, before I put in any purchase order, I make a commitment to myself and to my external board that I'm going to sell through this stock you know luckily we've never had to write off any stock but i'm not putting in purchase orders of like you know 50,000 units right yeah. so i'm either going to give the stock away or i'm going to sell it but i'm going to get it into consumers hands mm-hmm. and i think from a whitening pen and breath spray perspective it was that gut feel of you know it would be remiss of me to think that the entire market is looking for non-toxic natural toothpaste. We're still a very small percentage of the Australian market specifically, but what does everybody want? Mm. White teeth. And it kind of led to the innovation of the whitening pen. Um, and we've seen huge success of the, the pen in the market. And off the back of that success, it's really driven other customers um, in other spaces from the Mecca relationship to really take notice of our brand and it's just kind of snowballed from there. Mm. Do you think like uh, like if you were to look back on that now, 
Um, is that a strategy that you would like recommend to, to say a founder? Like, you know, if you are looking to penetrate a market, um, you can kind of leverage other products to build that brand awareness, you yep. know? So like, you're obviously selling um, your original product, but then in order to get, you know, your brand um, seen by, you know, maybe pot uh, potential um, different customers or more of them that, yep. you know, you can, you can kind of leverage um, you know, other products and, and like you said, make those small bets. Like you don't need to launch huge quantities of this product, but you can kind of enter the market and, and just kind of see if that gets you some more awareness. Yeah. And I think especially early on, like you throw everything at the wall and you see what sticks. Yeah. Because you don't really know what's going to resonate in the market. You've got gut feel, but yeah, I guess I think it's important to if you want to be mass, think mass. So what is kind of your everyday consumer want to shop? And I think while I did think mass in the beginning when I was, you know, thinking through toothpaste and I couldn't get over the fact that it needed to be better for you because I couldn't launch a product that didn't have better for you call outs in this kind of day and age. Mm -hmm. But I quickly realized that, you know, it might not be for everybody, but what is for everybody, I can still add components to my range so I can add an electric toothbrush, I can add like a cute little Terry toweling bag that like is great for makeup or travel, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's about building the brand and building that customer loyalty and the customer base where you can really, you know, you can feed into them. You can ask them what do they want to see next from the brand um, and then you can cater to that. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. One of the things I'm interested in is, you know, um, like with a company like Mecca, like what was that process like and, and trying to kind of, um, get into these distribution channels and yep. I'm sure that would have been um, not only difficult but it would have been a, a really interesting journey for yeah. you um, like did you have to pitch like what was that process like and yes and you know um, I'm sure like it for a lot of people who say you know um, are in a similar position or they're, they're in a similar business um, what advice can you give around that like how did you how do you kind of get um even get that opportunity in the first place. Definitely. And is that something you, you, you kind of thought about and thought, uh, or uh, something that you thought from the very beginning that you wanted to go to those kind of distribution channels? So I think persistence is key. <laughs> yeah. I basically stalked the Mecca buyer who I now call a friend, um, but- Are we talking like LinkedIn sales navigator? Like, you everything. know, everything. Stalk the shit out of the buyers. Yeah. Like you find them on LinkedIn, you find them on, you know, you ask like-minded brands, you find them on social, you just really dig deep. If you've got one contact, do some digging, like you've got to make this work, mm. right? And that's kind of my philosophy to everything in business. If you're putting in a purchase order for 5,000 units, for 10,000 units, make it work. So with the buyers, I stalk, stalk, stalk. <laughs> then you eventually get a meeting, you send samples, um, you put together kind of a presentation deck, you shit yourself and then you do the meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a lot of pressure. Change it last minute. <laughs> exactly. Mecca for us was always a dream retailer. And I think the whole team at Mecca and Joe Horgan specifically. They're amazing. They really inspire and they believe in young female entrepreneurs, mm. especially um, local from Australia. And so I think they really took a chance on Jem um, and on me, which is, you know, been amazing. It's it's paid off for everyone involved. It's been amazing. I think they've been surprised at how well the brand's done in the channel because, you know, we're selling oral care and Mecca's a number one beauty destination really for makeup and skincare. And so I think when you're thinking about launching a product, think about where your, cons 
don't think too hard about where your consumer shops. So they might shop across category, mm. but you need to almost profile them in a way that if they're like a beauty focused consumer, then they probably want beautiful products, which also, you know, includes beautiful oral care products. So I think, you know, our success on Mecca.com has been really, it's been a testament to that. What do you think? Uh, so you mentioned that they really believed in yourself and they, they you know, obviously believe in female entrepreneurs and, 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 and so on. But what do you think that they seen in you that, um, that made them make that decision? Because they're, they're not only just investing in your product, they're investing in you. And yeah. how did you overcome, say, that sense of imposter syndrome? You know, you're, yes. you're probably, you know, you're pitching to Mecca and you're probably sitting there two hours before going, oh, my God, like, is this actually happening? But yeah. how did you overcome that imposter syndrome? And what do you think Mecca seen in you that potentially other founders can learn from? I think it's really important to have drive and it's really important to have passion for your brand. Um, never sort of forget where you came from and the reasons why you just start you decided to start the brand um, and I think just like a passion to keep going and to keep improving and you know to never be kind of satisfied with where the brand's at I'm mm. always looking to innovate whether it's from a packaging perspective a formulation perspective like I'm never really happy and it can be to my detriment but it's you know it's essential to building a brand and to making it perfect because it's never going to be perfect mm. so i'm never going to sit back and be like oh okay i've done my job the brand's now rolling it's like there's always something to fix there's always something to improve on and there's always a new customer to to approach i feel like you can feel that when you meet the fa a founder that has that passion like yeah. they you can see it in their eyes when they're talking yeah. about their brand and i think um I, you know, I talked about imposter syndrome, but I feel like when you are that passionate about this, you know, product that you're building or, or service or whatever it is, people can really feel that. Um, and, you know, um, if you do have that passion, it comes out in the way you communicate. Yeah. You know, you're, you're always pitching. It's you my know, baby. Like, yeah, yeah, you're it's always my, I pitching. I live and breathe this business. <laughs> yeah. But don't get me wrong, imposter syndrome is very much there and mm. it will never go away. You know, I it's kind of that feeling that, you know, A, how did I end up here? B, I'm <laughs> definitely not the most qualified person for the role, but I'm here and I've, you know, gotten the brand to, to where it's at today. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm in a position where I've, I need to make decisions based on the brand. So I need to believe in myself because if I don't believe in myself, no one else is going to. Yeah. And you got to, it's like, you kind of, it's like, uh, I'm trying to think what it is, like a, a similar experience just in everyday life, but you're there, it's, you know, you've, you've, you've created this opportunity. Yeah. Um, and you kind of, you, like you said before, you shit yourself right before totally. it, but you got to do it, you got to do it anyway. Like you like, let's remember go. everybody is faking it, like fake till <laughs> you make it. Everyone is, you know, no one really has an idea of what they're doing and that's fine. You know, you just, you learn things on the job and if you're making the wrong decision, you'll quickly fix it. It's not the end of the world. I think like, you know, when I said to you in the beginning, uh, the reason I get excited about these podcasts is because the amount of people that I sit in front of who actually say that yeah. is like, it's, it's enormous. And I think that for everyone who's listening, it really is the truth. And it's fake it and you make it isn't in a deceit. It's not a, a deceitful way. It's like, no, like no matter how much knowledge you have, nothing replaces it, the experiences you get from actually doing the thing. A hundred percent. And that's again, why it's so important to be involved in every element of the business. What are the challenges that you now face? Like, I think we can talk in retrospect of 
startup, yep. product market fit, proving the product, getting it into, you know, these distribution channels. But what are the challenges that you face in real time, you know, from going on this journey, which is probably trying to scale from where you are now? And yep. um, even on the, a level of like, you know, um, your personal journey, like how are you overcoming the, the you know, um, uh, those hurdles, you know, personally, what are you doing to upskill yep. um, and so on? I think, so several challenges. I think because the business is growing so quickly, sometimes it's hard to kind of take a breath, stand back. You know, I spend all my time working in the business. It's really as equally important, if not more important to work on the business. So really understanding, okay, where's the business at today? Where do I want it to be in six to 12 months? Um, and how can I hire and build out a leadership team that can really get me there? Um, just from a personal sense, I'm pregnant, I'm having a baby, which is exciting, June, August. Um, and it's really forced me to look at my business. You know, I'm a huge control freak and I've got <laughs> my finger in every pie and I'm totally across everything in the business, which is really, really important. But the realities of having a baby is that I'm, I need to take time off. Like mm. at some point I'm going to have to take a step back. And so it's really forced me to look at the business objectively and kind of hire beyond the current expertise. I always say, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. So if this baby's forcing me to build out a leadership team and potentially even hire beyond where we're at in terms of our growth right now, um, then it's you know a benefit and it's, and it's a plus and we're setting ourselves up for success. But it's really tricky to make those decisions, yeah. you know, and and higher beyond where we're at at the moment. So I'm looking for positions that I probably don't need for another like 12 to 24 months. But because of the personal position that I'm in, we need it now. So it's, it's so true. Like I feel like I we're in a similar position just with our business as well. It's kind of like um, you're forced to think, you, you know, and I, I, this is, a, I guess, a question that I would have for you, but you're kind of almost forced to think further ahead. Yeah. And more importantly, like, you, you're going to, I would imagine this is you, you need people in your business now that are actually going to help drive growth and bring, 100%. bring another layer to the business. And of that's what exactly missing. right. Yeah. And there is different levels of growth. Um, so, you know, where we're in a thousand stores where, you know, we're at X amount of Instagram followers and we've got X amount of reach and we're doing an X amount kind of run rate, but how do we get to that next level? And, you know, when we do launch into mainstream kind of distribution, how are we tailoring the business to that? So that's, you know, we need to develop systems and processes to actually, you know, forecast and get stock ready and get orders, orders in and kind of move it in the most efficient way. But then it's also, how are we talking to a more mainstream customer? You know, how are we hitting those run rates? Because we're getting benchmarked against your mainstream competitors mm. like Colgate, Crest and Oral-B. So how are we as, you know, a small startup gonna behave like a big guy, even though we're tiny and we're this little duck that looks really peaceful, but is scrambling on the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> So lots of challenges, but no business, um, no problems, no business. Yeah, it's so true. You mentioned before, um, like the business is growing really quickly. And this yeah. is something that um, like, uh, I know that we're experiencing a little bit of this at the moment too, but are you ever thinking about, it's not slowing growth, but like you have to be able to fulfill the growth that you're experiencing. Yeah. 
How do you think about that? And, and you know, um, what's your mindset going into that? Because it can feel counterintuitive in a way. Yes. Like how are you thinking about that and how important is forecasting and, and really managing the, um, the growth rate over yeah. time? It's actually really interesting that you asked this this question now because it's something that we are going through at the moment so I'm like very passionate I want to grow 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 let's quickly quickly like not fast enough let's keep going keep going but especially when we enter into new markets we've got an opportunity with a number one health and beauty retailer in the UK and I'm like okay great like that's awesome but where else are we launching you know x y and z's interested so let's be talking to them as well and I've actually had to kind of take a step back um, due to the advice of, you know, people around me and basically, you know, remember that it's actually really important to nail distribution in one key retailer and yeah. do it properly and build the brand, especially in a foreign market, build the brand with one retail partner, smash it, do incredibly well, drive people into store, build up that association with the retailer because if, if you fail in that retailer, if you try to do things too quickly and try to grow the brand too quickly, you'll end up failing overall. Yeah, it's such a good point. Like, you know, you naturally you always want more Yeah. and to stop yourself from maybe taking that leap too early or... Yeah, or and be strategic. Like it's actually really important to be strategic about things. Take a breath, take a step back and really have like a, a strategic focus on decision-making. It's almost like the evolution of yourself as a business owner, yeah. like because startup phase is all about just run through walls, push as hard 100%. as you can, and then that's naturally built into you. And it's almost like what got you to where you are is not what's going to get you to that next phase. And you know, you have to grow as an individual in order to be able to make those decisions. Yeah, it's like running downhill. You know, it's yeah. it's actually a really hard thing to do. Yeah, and you have to shift your mindset depending on what's happening in the market and where your business is at in mm. the market. That's a good point. Can you uh, like touch on that a little bit? Like, what when you think when you speak about um, keeping a finger on the pulse of the market yep. and being able to navigate that from a decision-making process? Like, what does that mean? So, to someone who all they're worried about right now is um, proving their product, maybe they're they're in their first twelve months. What do you mean by like keeping an eye on the market and and you know um, more importantly navigating your business through the market? I think it's dependent on your distribution strategy. So for us, you know, we're in X, Y, and Z um, stores and like we're in, you know, typical kind of mum and dad wholesalers, like independent independent kind of food stores. And the strategy there has always been build the market in like your local mum and dad health food shop because when we do launch into majors, people have hopefully tried the product, they've been using the product, they love the product. So you'll have an easier sell through mm. in that way. But when you do approach key retailers, like we are launching into a, a big grocery retail in a very kind of bespoke, premium controlled way, but it's still, you know, your average kind of grocery. So I think it's about understanding where your business is at, at that stage, kind of targeting your marketing, targeting your messaging to a consumer that is shopping in that store. Mm -hmm. um, and just being really aware of, you know, the potential backlash even from existing customers going into more kind of mainstream locations as well and trying to make sure that each customer feels really special and they feel like you're giving them equally the amount of attention and love when you do spread your business to, 
to other distributors. Yeah, that's the greatest challenge of all, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so you've obviously built a business um, to a point now where you're, you're obviously scaling and you're you know taking these next steps. But in retrospect, one thing I always find really interesting, like you know, I think last year we did 49 interviews. Like we, I get to interview a lot of people. Uh, like, do you, in your own head, start to almost create a bit of a formula of uh, how to grow a business, you know? So like, I know that there's the kind of set principles and there's, you know, um, that's what mentors are great for and, and yep. they can always give you advice, but are you starting to create your own little formula? And like, let's say you were starting again, how would you do that? Like, and, and what were some of the, the key things that you look back on and say, this was really important or this yep. is how you do it? Or is it just different yeah. for everybody? Is it like literally, you know, or, um, you know, chaos and, and really just trying to find your way? With the founder and the CEO or somebody kind of managing the business, there's different streams. So you've got like accounts, operations um, and logistics, marketing um, and sales. And so you kind of have to develop your own groove in each department mm -hmm. and you really have to have an overall understanding of each department in order to manage people to help you. So what I've learned over the years is, you know, as a headline, like the unit economics are really important. That sits under accounting and finance. Um, having like a very robust forecasting plan for stock is really important. Mm -hmm. That sits under kind of operations. And these things kind of evolve as you learn the ropes. But with marketing, you know, I, Lily, um, my marketing and social media head, it, it, we worked very closely on marketing together and we developed kind of strategies, especially for launching new products. Um, and we developed, you know, key 10 things like key touch points that we need to hit when launching a new product. Um, so that's really important, but that's only evolved just in the past six months. So you're sort of like constantly thinking on your feet and constantly trying to do better than, than last year. But I think it's also really important to pause and reflect on the growth. Like even little things this morning, I randomly was looking through my Instagram on the gem account <laughs> and I screenshotted 2021, 20, sorry, 2020, 2021, 2022, and now 2023. And the growth just from like a visual perspective that we've had, obviously we've changed the packaging, but We've got it to such an amazing place. And I'm so proud of my internal team and I that have really got it to that level. And so just taking a step back, even like via photos and just looking back on kind of where you started and where you are now, it's really rewarding. Yeah, I love what you said around the streams. Yeah. Because I feel like, um, you know, as you grow, whether it's month to month, quarter to quarter, you're required to like one of those streams will probably require a little bit more work to get yeah. it to that next level. And then, yeah. you know, maybe the next quarter or the next month, you know, it's the same thing. Like you're always working on those streams. Exactly. But then, like you said, like, I think, um, you know, just stopping to smell the roses is important yeah. as well. Like, you know, you can quickly get just caught up in the day to day or the month to month, but yeah. actually looking back at say two years ago and going, wow, we actually have developed. A hundred percent. It can almost calm you and just, settle you and say, okay, like no matter what I'm going through right now, you know, we can grow, grow through this and develop. Yeah. If I had said to myself in 2020, in 2023, you'll be married with a baby on the way, <laughs> I'm single, launching my business. You'll be married, baby on the way, you're launching into X retailer, X retailer in the UK. I would honestly not believe it. But now I'm like, we're not doing enough. We're not hitting enough run rate, da, 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 da. So I'm so hard on myself in the present day. But if I spoke to myself back in 2020 when we launched the brand, I would be 
completely blown away. So having that perspective is really important. I love that. I think, you know, 100%, like, and I think we don't do it enough in yeah. business. Like, you know, um, I actually spoke to, do you know Chelsea Pottinger? She's a, like a, she teaches mental health in the workplace and does yeah. like corporate speaking, but she kind of talked about that element of it, like yeah. stopping spending time actually reviewing where you've come from and stuff like that. Really and that was important. pretty profound when I, when she said that. Um, yeah. And even, you know, maybe sometimes putting that in the diary for not only you, but the team as well. That was definitely, yeah. Last little segment um, that we have is called quick fire. Yep. Um, and so these are questions that may not relate to business in a sense, but um, you know, they're, and, and I always get in trouble, but you don't, it's not as if you need to give a quick answer. It's yep. more just these broader questions. The first question is one piece of advice for your younger self. Um, one piece of advice, just keep going. Times are going to get really tough, but just keep at it and keep going because, you know, don't underestimate the power of hard work. Just keep evolving. It's not the end of the world. It will get better. Um, and the best is yet to come. I love it. I think it's, uh, it's something you, you learn, like, you know, if you've been in business for more than, say, 12 months or, yeah. or 24 months, you kind of realise that um, it really is just about that resiliency of kind of getting through these issues that arise because they yeah. don't stop. They actually get bigger. No, exactly. And my husband always says to me, what's the worst that's going to happen? We're going to have toothpaste for the rest of our lives. Great. <laughs> you know? 100%. I love yeah. that. Um, so what's one piece of advice for women in business? Never underestimate yourself. Uh, people will always challenge you. I think this is a, a kind of comment on younger people in business. Um, people will always challenge your competency and your capabilities, um, but don't underestimate yourself. Keep going, have confidence in your ability um, and have confidence in your decision-making as well. Uh, I really like that point. How do you, because you would have experienced this firsthand. You've gone yeah. into a massive market. Um, you're probably dealing with people that are much older than you. Yeah. They're not paying you the respect that you deserve from building this product that you've put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into. Um, like how does, like what, what were some of the uh, conversations that you were having with yourself to help you overcome that as that hurdle because I feel like that's yeah. such a big thing. For a long time in years one and two of the business and even before I started the brand, I was very kind of complacent and relied on the expertise of other people around me because I felt very underexperienced, which I was, but I never really stood up for myself. And I think that is one of the factors one of the reasons why we spent so much time refining the packaging and refining the brand direction because I kind of was just saying to all these people around me, oh, yeah, I mean, that looks good and, yeah, mm. I'm happy with that. And whereas I decided two years into my business that I really needed to take a leadership role and if this was going to be my business, I needed to treat it like my business and I really need to be forceful in my decision-making. Mm. Um, and so it's really led to me being a complete control freak over every element in the business, but I think it's also really important. I need to have a proper grasp on what's going on because no one loves your business like the founder. Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who's just starting a business? Um, 
identify if there's a need for the product in the market, make sure the unit economics are right. I feel like I keep harping on about that, but it's really important because you run yeah. out of cash and make small bets. Yeah, love that. We covered all three of those there, yeah. there but they're three big themes from this episode. Yeah. What's the most important trait that a founder must have for success and why? Again, I feel like I'm repeating myself, <laughs> but passion and drive. You need to believe in the brand and you need to believe in your business and you need to have the passion and drive to propel it forward. I can't tell you how many times people have told me it's a stupid idea, you're never going to make money in toothpaste, it's, you know, daggy, it's a boring category, it's you're up against big players in the space that have deep pockets, but you just have to propel it forward and you have to believe in yourself and believe in the brand. Absolutely love it and totally agree. Yeah. Georgia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Um, um, I know that obviously when you're running a business that time is such a valuable piece. So I do really appreciate you um, coming on the show and sharing your journey and, you. and, you know, all the wonderful lessons that you've learned so far and, you know, all the best for the future as well. Congratulations on thank Bub you. And, and, you know, um, you know, good luck with, you know, everything from Bub to business in the future. Thank uh, you for having me. Uh, sorry, where can, just, just so that before we finish, where can people find... Um, the brand as well, you know, um, is social media the best place and yes. also yourself as well? Social media, gem.au is our social media. We're on TikTok, we're on Instagram, Facebook. Um, and then obviously our website, gem-products.co. Um, and yeah. Beautiful. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thank um, you. And to everyone who listened, thank you so much for the wonderful support. Um, we don't get to ama uh, interview amazing people like Georgia without that. Oh, so I hope you enjoy the episode and we'll see you next week.